2: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Drs. Robert P. Seldine and Stephen B. Tellis to discuss their new book, Never Trump, The Revolt of the Conservative Elites, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. The book uses interviews with 62 conservative elites who opposed Donald Trump's presidency. The authors unpack the varying motives and methods, degrees of intensity, and approaches to resistance among conservative elites. Saldin and Tellus provide a nuanced assessment of Never Trump, both successes and failures, to reflect on the long term consequences for both parties, conservatism, and the mechanics of the American constitutional system. Robert P. Saldin is professor of political science and a Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana and Stephen M. Tellis is professor of political science at the Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Naskinen Center. They both published extensively in their fields, as well as for distinguished popular outlets like the Washington Post and National Review, and I'm pleased to welcome them both to the podcast.
1: Good to be here, Susan. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: So first, tell me a little bit about how uh, this book ties to your previous work in American politics and the decision to collaborate. Rob, Rob, why don't you start us off?
3: Well, the, uh, the, the, the way Steve and I got connected in the first place is that, uh, Steve is the editor of, uh, a series at Oxford university press on, on post-war American political development. And that's the, the series that my second book came out with. And, um, and, and so we were, we were, uh, kind of in, in discussion, in communication around the release of, of that book. And um, Steve was asking, well, you know, what are you thinking about doing next? And, and I said, well, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this Never Trump phenomenon. Um, it, th- this was just right after the, the 2016 election. And um, so I'm thinking about doing, doing something similar to what I did in the previous book, which is uh, a lot of elite level interviews um, of, these, of these never Trumpers. And, uh, and, and Steve wrote back and said, hey, I know a lot about that. And, and uh, interviews is uh, a, a method that Steve has used a lot in the past too. And so it, it did kind of nicely grow out of that. Um, and, and of course, Steve, is, uh, Steve has done a lot on uh, conservatives and, and the conservative movement.
1: Yeah, I mean, conservatives, you know, Carmen Miranda famously said that bananas is my business and conservatives is sort of my business in political science. I had written um, a couple of previous books um, focusing on conservative elites. Um, One, probably my best known book, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement, was based on extensive interviewing as well as archival material. I read a more recent book with David uh, Dagon called Prison Break on why conservatives were changing their mind on mass incarceration. And um, the other thing that I think worth mentioning is both Rob and I studied at different times at the University of Virginia, where um, we actually had at least one uh, conservative um, uh, advisor in uh, Jim Caesar, as well as some others. And um, I think that has given both of us probably a little more entree into that particular part of the conservative world than most people um, in political science have.
2: Tell me a little bit about the method. Uh, you have a list of the people that you interviewed in the back. Uh, were these in person? Were they by phone? And, and how did you create this list of the nine women um, and 53 men that you talked to? You also obtained emails and other correspondence. T- tell me a little bit about how that worked.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that to start out with. So, um, method might be a little uh, gilding the lily. Um, this, I mean, if you want to use technical terms, we could say that some of this was snowball sampling. Um, we interviewed a lot of the people who were in this were people who were very um, out front. Um, they'd been publishing. They'd been identifying themselves with Never Trump. Um, it should be admitted that the basic structure of the book in, divided into professional groupings didn't really um, come together until fairly late in the process, I think. I think that's when we realized that that was the principal organizing structure of these networks and that and that, that really made sense of a lot of what, what was going on. So we started with the, with the most visible people and then in some cases people... Suggested that we needed to um, to go and talk to somebody else, so there was some snowball sampling, and so we we mostly um, kept going down the list until we felt like we had sort of made sense of each of these professional networks
2: uh, Was there a person who you very much wanted to interview that would not grant an interview were, were there were there people that that fit Fit, fit the definition of what you wanted, but that were not accessible?
3: Well, there were certainly some people who, um, who, who we didn't interview. I mean, Max Boot is, is one and on, on the foreign policy side and, um, a public intellectual too. Um, yeah, you know, and there, there were, yeah, you know, we could have gone back and, and interviewed a, a handful of other people, but, um, I, I mean, I think a couple of things are worth pointing out. This is, a relatively small world. And so it's, it's not like it's a sprawling thing where, where there are just thousands and thousands of of, of people, at least in the way that we conceive of, of never Trump as being an elite party phenomenon. Uh, you know, we aren't looking at it, um, as as something out there in the electorate. So it is a a fairly identifiable group of people. And then, um, just, just to piggyback on what Steve was saying. I mean, part of what we were trying to do was, was understand it. Um, in terms of these professional networks, which we think is so important, understanding the Never Trump phenomenon, and you know, after after you do a bunch of interviews with 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 with, with these folks, you, you just get diminishing returns in terms of uh, trying to trying to talk to every single last person. So, you know, what we tried to do is get a you know go after all the all the obvious people, and then um, as we got further into it, try to hit some of the some of the people that, that that you get led to, or that you know, people say, "Hey, you, you know, you really got to talk to so and so." But we 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 do feel like we got a, a really good uh, sample, so to speak, uh, within each of these little orbits that we discuss in the book.
1: Yeah, and the last thing I'll just say on that is, we, unlike a lot of political science or social science work, we did really feel the press of time, and you know, in retrospect, I wish we'd gotten it done even a little. Um, a little earlier, but we did want to get this out um so this was a little bit more like real time social science and at the at the margin where we did feel like there were declining marginal returns that 's where we decided to emphasize you know getting it out while people were still really interested in the topic over complete uh complete sort of exhausting every possible angle well I'd no, maybe say...
3: No, you go ahead oh you go ahead yeah and and, and just want one, uh, one other final point you know we found I, I think somewhat to my surprise that most people and, and there were a couple exceptions but most people were were, were pretty eager to talk with us I we, we didn't have too many people say no or just not respond to our requests you know some so, sometimes it it, it took uh, it, it took several requests but you know most people got back immediately and were uh, very happy. Uh, to tell their story,
2: so one one of the important reasons for getting this book out would be that in in a lot of ways it it confronts a narrative of the never Trumpers as as just failures, but you really want to explore why these men and women, all party loyalists, uh, would oppose their own nominee, and and you argue that. The, that they felt obligated to do so as individuals, um, sometimes in a in a kind of an idiosyncratic way, um, but that they thought that their roles in the party, their part in this profession, entitled them to this opposition. So l- let's get to who the Never Trumpers are. Um, m- many of the listeners know, but I think you define it and talk about it in a way that's that's far more nuanced. So so who who are they?
1: So, in the book, we use the concept that we draw from Andrew Abbott's um, uh, book, the uh, um, on the uh, so, on sociology of professions, uh, the concept of jurisdiction. Um, that what makes a profession a profession is they feel like is those that that group has jurisdiction over expert work. Um, and that what makes what defines this group um, is that at least up until 2016, they had a re- relatively well defined jurisdiction uh, over a particular piece of expert work in the party, right? The national security conservatives had uh, jurisdiction over uh, advising candidates, over staffing uh, most of the positions in the national security infrastructure. Um, the uh, political professionals had jurisdiction over not just campaigns, but over overall electoral strategy. Um, public intellectuals, which is a sort of uh, vaguer and more nebulous group, still thought they had a kind of jurisdiction over preserving the, um, the general ideological um, cleanliness and purity of the campaigns, uh, of, the, of the, uh, the party's message. And so when you think about who these people were, they're really defined by those specific jurisdictions uh, that they had. And in the book, we argue that their opposition to Trump was, in part, justified in their own minds by that jurisdiction. They thought they were authorized, that it, in some sense, was their job to do this. Um, And then in individuals, there are also idiosyncratic Stories um, that uh, in some cases have to do with religion um, that I think was turned out to be pretty important in explaining why some of these people felt so strongly that they needed to oppose Trump um, even at some degree of professional risk. No, and that's yeah. a
2: fascinating part of the book that uh, I definitely want to take up later in our in our conversation. R- R- Rob, uh, please, other things about who the never Trumpers are? Uh, Steve has said that who they think they are and the role that they think they play, um, is that any different from the actual influence they have over voters, journalists, the government, et cetera?
3: Well, yeah. So, so I, I think there was always a little bit of a, 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 a disconnect there. But, and, and in fact, that's one of the things that became quite apparent. I mean, the, the the national security folks, which is which is kind of the group against which all the other groups are, um, are are measured in our account, because that was just such an internally cohesive group in a way that 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 the others were not. Um, but you know, one of the things, <clears throat> one of the things that. Uh, Trump realized is that those national security people, for as prominent a role as they've played in, in um, previous Republican administrations and Republican campaigns, they don't command an army of voters out there, right? And so he, he went straight at them during the campaign. In fact, very clearly told them, you will have no part in my campaign. You will have no part in, in the Trump administration, um, really went right after their jurisdiction, and, uh, and and clearly that's not something that resonates uh, very deeply with, um, with, with with voters, right? So he he kind of he kind of recognized that there was that disconnect. And I, I guess the only other thing I'd say in general about about how we think of the Never Trumpers is that you know we we do think of it as um, basically a phenomenon uh, that 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 took place within these. People who provide these important services to the party, right? So we are not talking about elected officials, right? And yeah, you know there, there there were a handful in that space. Uh, Mitt Romney, you know, most obviously, but uh, but the white hot core of the Never Trump phenomenon uh, was not with elected officials. In our account, it was not with uh, voters out there um, in, in in the mass public. It was with these service providers, these these, these people who provide really important services to. Uh, the party—that's where that—that's where the real action was.
2: And, and your claim, if I got it right, is that it's more than providing a function to the party, but it's also a function of a political function of balance in the American liberal democratic system, and that somebody like Trump, who was running on populism, which would put him at odds with elites to begin with, is. In some way, threatening this balance, and that's part of what the elites believe that they're doing is as a as a corrective. Is, is that is yeah.
1: that correct? So we, so we draw on the work of um, Daniel Ziblat um, and Steve Levitsky on this, um, basically arguing that in a liberal democracy, um, especially on the right, and this draws on on Levit on um, Ziblat's. Book on Conservative Parties and the Consolidation of Democracy, that um, conservative parties in particular need uh, to, in some ways, insulate themselves from the worst extremes of populism by, um, in, in a way, uh, sort of uh, house training some of those instincts to both bring them into the political system so that they're not entirely outside it. Uh, um, but then to make them safe for liberal democracy, and I do think a lot of these uh, these elites that we're talking about in Never Trump uh, saw Trump as uh, as vi- as violating that particular kind of guardrail of liberal democracy, um, and I think that explains again a lot of why they opposed him. The other thing that I think is really important to to emphasize here is that, and it's hard to remember this now, was how many, you know, how broad the the belief that Trump was going to lose was um, for pretty much the entire campaign up until election day. And so there were many people who were involved in Never Trump who also, you know, who disliked Trump for a lot of reasons, but partially disliked him because they thought he was going to be dragging the party down into the ditch. Um, and they were trying to save people, save their party from what they thought was going to be a, um, a terrible defeat. Um, and so I think that's also worth keeping in mind. And that also explains, again, why some of these people ended up, as we say, being um, summer, uh, patri- you know, uh, sunshine patriots.
2: And it's a theme that runs throughout the book because many of the people that you are interviewing talk about their motives through the lens of imagining that Hillary Clinton's lead was enough and that she would be the next president. And so therefore, the, sh- the strategy was based on that, um, which is a fascinating part of the, of the narrative. Um, I know that... Uh, you wrote the book together but that some parts of it were uh, initially drafted by one author so i'll i'll turn to rob to talk about the national security professionals they it's the first part of the book it sets up the rest of the narrative as you said earlier by providing this contrast so so rob can you tell us a little bit about the foreign policy establishment who they are where they came from and and and, and and how you see them or they see themselves as, as guardians.
3: Yeah. um, Right. So the, the, the national security network is uh, we think unique for a number of reasons for, for, for one thing um, so many of these people are based in Washington, DC. They know each other, they socialize together. Um, there are institutions out there like the Council on Foreign Relations that um, that hosts a lot of um, various types of events that puts these people um, into conversation with one another um, and, and and not just on the Republican side right there, there's a lot of stuff out there that um, that uh, gets gets Democrats and Republicans um, to uh, interact with one another so so the, the, the point is uh, the whole so-called, um, foreign policy establishment—it's um, it, a—it's a pretty tight circle, and it's very heavily based in D.C. So these people are always interacting with one another, and um, in general, yeah, you know, and, and you can probably overstate this to some degree, um, but you know, there, it's just a less partisan group, right? We, we kept hearing this again and again from 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 these uh, uh, never Trumpers in the national security space. That they're, they're, they 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 kind of see uh, partisan politics as just a little icky, right? It's it's something that you have to put up with because that's how the game is played. But if they 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 had it their way, um, you know, they want to focus on policy, not not party politics. And um and uh, you know one of the other things I mentioned this earlier, but this was the group that was uh, just so internally cohesive, much more so than some of the other groups we looked at. But for, for this group, um, the people who did not get on board as never Trumpers, who uh, chose not to sign these group letters that they put out opposing Trump, you know, the, the words that were used to describe those people who refused to, uh, to denounce Trump, I mean, uh, words like traitor and stuff. And those words carry a, a really um, important meaning for, the, for those people, right? These aren't just words that you kind of idly throw around. And, um and, and, and we think that that cohesion that they had kind of is, is a function of the fact, again, that all these people know each other. Um, they, they run in the same circles. You know, it's not like the, 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 the world of political professionals where people are scattered all over the place. And, you know, most of them don't know, know, one another. Um, and, uh, um, and, and, and so you, you're, you you, you mentioned the guardian mentality, right? And And we think this is something that Kind of crops up from just this the, the the fact that these people are all networked together um, and and cross partisan too, and one of the things we heard a lot from our interviews was that um, you know the, the the Republicans we spoke with kind of talked about one of their roles as um, in 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 conjunction with uh, their counterparts on the Democratic side as keeping the the, the crazies at bay. Right. And the um, and and it's a a slightly different type of crazy that you find on on the right and on the left. But part of the way in which they viewed their role was to push back on the Republican side uh, against uh, populism and nationalism and uh, xenophobia and some of these things. But right that that was one of the jobs that these people were supposed to do. And and their counterparts on the Democratic side played a similar role with, uh, with with people on the far left of the democratic party, but they, 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 very much saw themselves as, see themselves as, um, as, as people who have this responsibility, um, to, 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 to keep things, um, centered and stable. And, and that is in in their eyes, um, uh, something that, that, that they very much work together, uh, with their democratic counterparts to, to ensure.
2: Do we have an example at another time where the national security professionals would be as public with a published letter against the nominee from uh, one of the two major parties? is Is there any sort of parallel in the past?
3: Certainly not like this. um we don't we don't get too deep into uh, historical parallels. I mean, yeah, you know, we we spent a little time looking at that, and and there was certainly a group of um, of uh, re- Republicans in 1964, for instance, who weren't happy with Goldwater and 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 organized to a degree around that. Um, 72 on the Democratic side, um, but certainly nothing like this on the national security side, where really it was it was it was really hard to find people in the national security space who were not opposed to, um, to Trump. So I, I do think that's uh, unprecedented. Maybe you also another... say,
2: oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh,
3: sorry. So, um, Well, this is Rob, but um, just maybe one other thing I'd, I'd note on, um, on the, the national security side, one of the um, things that helps inform those two chapters are a series of emails that we got access to when, uh, when one of these letters was being shopped around. Um, We were able to get uh, the, 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 the email uh, exchange. So, so, so we could see, you know, how people were responding at the time rather than just with the benefit of, uh, of hindsight and looking back on it. And, and that was a a fascinating thing. And it really did draw out the extent to which um, that network um, has this internal cohesion and and a sense of uh, duty and and mission, and they see themselves again as, as these guardians. But and and you also see um, in that and, and and a lot of this, we we were able to quote from those emails. We, we don't ascribe them to to particular people, but uh, but but we were allowed to quote from them extensively. You you do see the the, the real hostility and venom that that uh the, the the core group had to the handful of people who for whatever reason decided that that they weren't going to go public with uh with their opposition to Trump.
2: No, and in that section, the language, the idea of the, these people being Vichy collaborators, these are these are people who would collaborate with Nazis. I mean for people who do foreign policy, that is a third rail uh uh word to use. Um, And what I also thought was fascinating about this chapter is that the objection of the foreign policy uh, establishment doesn't seem to be the direction of Trump's potential foreign policy as much as it is to something about his character and his suitability for for office.
1: Yeah, I just want to get in on on that one. I mean, I do think this is important. Now, there were a number of people who uh, were genuinely disturbed by the direction that Trump was proposing uh, taking the substance of foreign policy. And I do think that's important. But when there's a great quote by Phil Zellico, who's um, now at Virginia, but before had served on the uh, George um, W. Bush administration, where he says, you know, the lives of people who do national security are made up by, you know, funerals and parades, right? And the sort of ritual... Quality of government service um, is very important to them. And the fact that Trump seemed to uh, have, uh, you know, to, to treat those kinds of things in such a incredibly um, uh, dismissive manner, I think really did bother these people, right? They really did think that authority uh, flowed from the top and that they needed to actually respect the commander-in-chief. Um, and when you see, when you talk to some of the lawyers, which we talk about later, um, they often talk about the fact that, you know, they're comfortable having clients that they don't respect. Um, and I think that's a fundamental difference between these professional groups.
2: Rob, did you want to say something else about uh, the foreign policy uh, establishment before we move to the political <clears throat> operatives?
3: Um. No, I I don't think so, Steve. Did we did we miss any key points there? I
1: No, I think that covers it.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um no, they're such an interesting group, and you do a very nice job of of, of creating a very nuanced picture of, of of the group. Now, when it comes to the pack animals, and you use a lot of animal imagery here, they're they're deer in the headlights, et cetera. Um you say, and I, I'm just going to read it, despite near universal, albeit largely silent opposition to Trump initially, most operatives dutifully fell in line once he became the presumptive nominee. Yet the small minority within the political operative world that refused to make their peace with him emerged as one of the brightest constellations in the never Trump universe. And I was wondering, Rob, you wrote this chapter or the the first version of this chapter. So maybe you'll start us off. Who are the pack animals and uh, how are they? um, Why did so few of them uh, uh, join Never Trump as opposed to the foreign policy folks? And, And what are some of the contrasts between the two groups?
3: Right. So, so the, the, the group of people we have in mind here are basically all the people who, who run campaigns and, and you're talking about, you know, thousands of people across the country, you know, the, the kind of top tier, um, celebrity consultant types, like, like Mike Murphy and Stu Stevens, um, you know, on down to, 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 the people who, who run, you know, local, local campaigns. Um, and, you know the the thing that i think really stands out about about this network is that this is the group that is just most dependent on um staying in the good graces of uh the republican party for for their livelihood right the, this is the way they they pay their mortgage and that's a real contrast to like the national security types right all these national security types that we talk to you know they have they have other ways to make a living and to be uh fulfilled professionally right they can they can go back to their think tank gig or or their university uh professorship um or or you know go back to their magazine or whatever um, but these these people who who work in the trenches of political campaigns right they don't they don't have those kinds of alternative uh, opportunities and and so one of the things that Became clear is that the, the the opposition to Trump early on in this group was 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 nearly universal. But as it became increasingly clear that Trump was going to win the nomination, um, you know, people have to get in line because because their jobs their their jobs are at stake here. Um, and so the in this orbit, right, unlike the national security types where it was nearly totally unified within the world of political operatives political professionals, uh, it was, um, such that by the end, those who went never Trump and stuck with it, uh, were, were, were really the minority. And it was, it was this group, I think, that felt in some ways the most, um, abandoned, and uh, it, it was a traumatic experience for some of them. Now, one of the things that helps explain, well, well who, who stuck Never Trump and, and who, who, who uh, crawled back into the fold is that, um, and, and this by no means uh, is, is the case for every single one, but in general, I think the ones who were the prominent Never Trumpers and who remain prominent Never Trumpers, right? A lot of, the, a lot of these people behind the Lincoln Project and uh, Republican voters against Trump. Um, going on right now, uh, come out of this uh, political operative world. But the ones who stuck with the never Trump thing are, are the ones who had more flexibility, right? These are people who had made a lot of money uh, running Republican campaigns. And so the idea of, um, of uh, taking a hit professionally um, just wasn't as big a deal, for, uh, as it was for, for some people earlier in their careers or, or who are just, you know, your average run of the mill political professional, as opposed to these people who'd, uh, who'd worked at the very highest levels of, you know, run presidential campaigns and, and, and things of this nature. Right. So, so, so they had, they had alternative ways to make money or they just didn't really need to be worried about, uh, paying their mortgage, um, at this point in their lives. Um, and and so I, I think that's one of the things that that that, that really stands out uh, about and and defines the, the the political prose that we discuss.
2: Despite the fact that all, as you describe it uh, so eloquently, their self interest was in the direction of continuing to play the role as media expert and pollster. Uh, despite that. W- Much of this section of the book is taken up with uh, a mid-level political consultant, uh, Joel Searby from Florida, who had had founded a consulting firm, going out and trying to find somebody to run against Trump as an independent candidate. So despite all of that, the the two people, and he's later joined by William Kristol, uh so so how do you explain that uh S- Sirby and Crystal end up doing this despite their interests? And uh can you also tell us a little bit about how what it is that they go and try to do?
3: Sure, yeah. Well, and, and Siberia is definitely one of those people who uh who paid a real price. Um and and and, and there are a number of them. But yeah, you know, I, and I guess maybe just in general, we could say this in general about the never Trumpers um, for many of them, and, and this is not the case with all, but for many of them, this was a, a a really traumatic experience. Um, uh, it ended up costing some of them professionally. Um, but it was also, uh, just something that in, in some cases shattered their, their own conception of, of who they were and, and what they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, and, uh, some of them, you know, felt this sense of, of being, of being betrayed and, and finding surprise to find themselves alone in, in the foxhole. And so on, on, on all these different levels for, um, for some of these, and, and again, this the, to, to some degree that varies by professional network, but, um, but, but it was certainly the case with a lot of the, prof- uh, with, with the, um, party professionals. Um, so, so yeah, CRB was kind of this mid-level, uh, um, political, pro who, who ran campaigns in, in Florida. And, um, you know, his story, I think, does highlight one thing that's important to note. You know, we spend a lot of time identifying, you know, structural issues and these uh, professional network issues that, that help us to explain and understand Never Trump. But there's also, <laughs> there, there is also just a, an element of personal choice. And um, David Frum had a nice way of, of putting it I think when when he said it on on some level, it just comes down to you know can you swallow the toad or or can you not and um and and that's going to just vary uh individually uh from from person to person um, and I think it, it, you know Sirby is is an example of this you know he's somebody who paid a big price um, and who recognized that he very well may be, may be paying a a big price and um nonetheless forged ahead so um, but, 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 but Sirby is, is absolutely a, a, a pivotal person in, in, in our account. And, and this search for the third party candidate is, uh, is uh, a big part of what was going on in this uh, political professional world. And, and Sierby was a ringleader for that. He, uh, he, he first tried to get Condoleezza Rice to, to, to run. He'd done some polling to try to identify, you know, who's going to, who's going to be the best person to, to run as, as an independent candidate. And, and Condi Rice, uh, was at the top of his list. And, um, and he, he basically cold called her and, um, and, uh, borderline harassed her and her chief of staff for, for, for a number of weeks and finally, uh, was told hell no. Um, but then at some point he got linked up with, with Bill Crystal uh, who, who of course has a, a long, long history in, in Republican party politics and the conservative movement. And, um, they, uh, a, along with Rick Wilson, uh, another political operative out of Florida, um, went about trying to, trying to woo somebody to, to, to run against Trump and Hillary. And, uh, they, they went after Mitt Romney. They went after Ben Sass, um, and, uh, uh, went after Jim Mattis, and and all of these people, those three anyway, Condoleezza Rice, it's not clear that, that she seriously considered it, but the other three, you know, took meetings with this group and took some time to think about it, um, you know, and uh, ultimately declined to do it. One of the big reasons, and Steve alluded to this earlier, uh, is that, you know, all of these decisions were being made in the context of the certainty that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so that really... That really shaped um, the the decision making process for um, for for those folks, and uh, you know after those big first four uh, possibilities, the, the the search process for a, for an alternative candidate it, it, it quickly devolved, and um, you know the the number of people they talked to about it um, is extensive. We 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 list a whole bunch of them in the book, uh, but they finally settled on um, uh, Evan McMullen. Who, who uh, you know, very few people had heard of um, prior to his to his run for president. He he was he'd been a Capitol Hill staffer. He was he'd been a CIA agent before that. Um, but uh, you know that was one where where the they 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 had they they had some shots at getting a, a high profile candidate, and uh, it it just uh, just didn't didn't work out. And um, it's it's possible with the benefit of, of hindsight, if people had taken a little bit more seriously the idea that you know Hillary Clinton might not win, um, that 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 could have changed things. But as it was, they ended up with uh, with Evan McMullin, and and th- this, a lot of these same people tried to tried to recruit a, a candidate this this go round too.
2: Steve, you wanted to um, also say something about the the operatives and the the search for the independent candidate.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I think more broadly, one of the things that I think is is hard uh, in a book like this is to tease out the difference between self interest and conviction, and um, you know, the methods we have are what they are. Um, But again, I think going back to that point about having about most people thinking they were going to lose, that I think part of you think about this self-interested or moderately self-interested motive here was that a lot of people talked about the idea that um, they would be sort of the clean team right after this debacle, which, again, everyone assumed would be a debacle that they would be able to come in and fumigate the place and they would be the ones to. Um, to make the Republican Party a sanitary party again. And um, so it's a little hard to know, right? You know, most people didn't think there was a very high probability of Trump winning. So it wasn't like they w- they were thinking when they were doing this that they were doing some sort of kamikaze mission. Um, they thought that, um, that that in some ways this actually might position them to have more influence after the election. And so I think that's a, that's a tricky thing in a book like this to do, is to sort out how much was people having a deep moral conviction, how much was this calculation based on the very limited information that people were operating with.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: No, and I think you do a very nice job because of the way you juxtapose their words about their own actions and your analysis as you go. I think that that tension comes out for the reader and i think it's an important one especially in a book that is relying on the the ad hoc um uh analysis of of the people involved with the exception of the emails which of course are are in the moment um l- l- before we move to the public intellectuals uh rob let me just ask you about jim mattis it, he he was very much um he was very much interested and you show him as very interested and very concerned. Why did not, why did he not run?
3: Well, um, I think there were a number of reasons. I, um, again, you know, everyone knew Hillary was going to win. And so, um, I, I think that just can't be overstated. And, you know, if, if, if that's your understanding of the situation that really changes, um changes what what that kind of uh candidacy would, would 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 mean, right? It's um you're 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 kind of uh betraying the party um and um and 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 you're also setting yourself up to be blamed by um by uh Trump supporters uh for 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 kind of uh stealing the election or throwing it to Hillary Clinton. And and so um I, I think that's a that's a just just something that can't be um over, overstated right if if people had taken seriously the idea that trump could win um things things just would have looked uh, uh very different
2: steve let's talk a little bit about the public intellectuals this part of the book is uh is so rich and so interesting so but let's start with so what were the the institutional, the material factors in conservative public intellectuals' role and and how did that influence their response to candidate Trump?
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing to note about public intellectuals is again, just materially they're organized differently than some of these other groups, and I do think there's an important distinction to be made between public intellectuals who are operating within mainstream um, uh, journalistic kind of uh, institutions and people who are operating inside of conservative controlled um, organizations. And that's an important distinction we make in the book. Um, One thing to say is that, especially for people who are operating inside of places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, that a certain set of conservatives thought of their job as in part being kind of like evangelists uh, for conservatism and people whose job was to um, explain and to justify conservatives to a non-conservative audience, right? And so those are people you think of like Ross Douthat or um, uh, or Jen Jen Rubin or people like that. And they often had a very deep dislike of uh, American liberalism and yet they also saw their job as talking largely to a liberal audience. And Trump was very problematic for what they saw as their project, right Their project of trying to argue that conservative conservatism wasn't fundamentally racist, wasn't fundamentally um, uh, you know stupid just to put it uh, to put it bluntly, um, but was a serious intellectual project that people needed to take. Seriously. And so Trump was, um, you know, violated everything they thought they believed about what conservatism ought to be and their own professional project of justifying it to liberals. Now, places like National Review, uh, which we talk about quite a bit, um, were a somewhat different story. I think one thing that's important to recognize there is that National Review had had a sort of very profound running. Conflict with the alt right um, going pretty far back in its history, and so many people who were involved in National Review saw Trump and saw the fact that so many of these figures in the alt right were gravitating to him, and processed Trump through that ongoing fight they had been having with parts of conservatism that they had uh, they thought they had um, sort of pushed to the margins, and uh, and so I think that. explains why they were so strongly reactive to him, um, even as many of them had some sympathies with some of the things that, uh, that Trump was, was arguing.
2: Throughout the book, you talk about mediums of communication and, and the hashtag uh, for example, never Trump that comes out or never French, which uh, for the the possible David French as one of the independent candidates And in the chapter on public intellectuals, you you reflect on how these changes in communication may have affected some of the long-term voices in conservative politics. And I was wondering if you or both of you would reflect a little bit on the mediums of communication that, that are used by all of the groups in the book, but particularly the public intellectuals.
1: Yeah, I mean, this came up a lot in the public intellectuals chapter, where they they talk very clearly about themselves as having this sort of purification role, right? That they they were in some ways like the the priests whose job was to distinguish between the um, the ritually clean and the ritually impure, um, and that the previous forms of communication and media and other things. Um, gave them a kind of pinch point where they could simply say that certain kinds of ideas were beyond the pale. And if Bill Buckley, um, you know, pushed people out into the wilderness, they were they were out there. Right. They could only talk in fairly marginal forms to each other. Um, But that one thing that had happened right with both the Internet and Facebook and lots of social media is that um, it wasn't possible to do that anymore, right? They weren't in that, um, that place where they could um, uh, perform that purity role. And that became very clear in the campaign, but only in a way quite late. Um, in the beginning of 2016, after National Review published its Against Trump issue, which was their attempt to blow Trump out of the water and after Trump had um, uh, had lost so uh, profoundly in, uh, in early primary, um, Rich Lowry, the editor, uh, put out a tweet with the, with the Against Trump uh, cover and just saying, uh, thank you, or, or no, you're welcome. Um, so I think they still fought fairly far into this, that they were able to play this role of um, defining what was legitimate Republican conservatism, and what was not, and only later did they realize that um, their ability to actually control the conservative brand had been slipping away from them.
2: Um, you mentioned earlier these differences among the public intellectuals. So in in this part of the book, you make clear that there isn't the same kind of uh relationships as we see with the foreign policy experts. There there isn't this same sense of we're all in this together because of the cleavages within uh, the conservative public intellectual movement. But you you spend some time on this notion of ideas having consequences and the, the sincere feeling on the part of some public intellectuals that we were at a moment in which we were about to corrupt our Republican character. And and you distinguish among the different uh, intellectuals finding, for example, that Jewish conservatives seemed much more uh, sensitive to uh, authoritarianism. And I was wondering if you could uh, explain a little bit more about, about those observations and the differences that you saw.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we spent a fair amount of time talking about this group called Reformicons or Reform Conservatives, who had been uh, for years trying to convince the Republican Party that um, it was becoming a working class or at least a white working class party and that it needed to have an economic policy that was appropriate to a working class party. Um, and that, uh, they had been frustrated in that project. They had found the sort of, um, more economically libertarian Coke network side of the Republican party to really be their adversary in, um, in that project. And that, um, one thing that was going on in the Republican primary was you had this, what you might call sort of Coke subprimary where, The Koch Network and the funders around them were putting all the candidates through their paces and trying to keep them into this pre existing, quite libertarian economic um, straitjacket. And so they had, in a way, been hoping for a candidate who would um, have a different opinion on immigration, would have a different opinion on middle class entitlements, would have a different opinion on um, protecting America's. American working class Americans jobs. Um, And unfortunately for them, the person who ended up running on that was Donald Trump, who most of them found incredibly morally um, indigestible. Um, But I think in some ways, for me, they were the most interesting group because they had this ambivalence Um, on the one hand, um, disliking Trump and thinking that he was um, he was a kind of poison and on the other hand, thinking that um, uh, the Republican Party had brought Trump on themselves by not listening to them earlier.
2: No, and, that, and also earlier in the book, you, you talk a lot about the autopsy and the sort of reports and the thinking that had been done by other parts of the conservative movement about where the party was, where it needed to go, and to have that deliberative conversation.
1: Yeah. And the the reformicons um, had been very critical of the autopsy, which they saw as more or less just suggesting that the Republican Party needed to um, uh, embrace immigration reform um, to be more tolerant, and then um, everyone would love their economic policy. Um, whereas the reformicons had exactly the opposite diagnosis. Um, and I do think that diagnosis was mostly right. Um, that, in fact, the economic policy of the Republican Party was its underlying long-term um, electoral problem. And now, again, I think many of them thought that it was possible to build a cross-racial working-class party. And again, one of the reasons they dislike Trump is that he was making that possibility of a cross-racial working-class Republican Party impossible by, um, by having such a sort of obviously blunt, um, uh, you know, racial animus.
3: Yeah. If I, if I, I, uh, yeah, Steve, um, Susan asked about, uh, the, the religious component. Why don't you, uh, go back and say a word about that?
2: Well, and actually, you know what, why don't we, um, let me restate it because, uh, I, I was at the university of Chicago long enough to, um, see the words Leo Strauss and to, to, for my hands to shake, so uh, you're actually describing a rather complex uh, group of people who have very, very different influences. On the one hand, you are talking about the followers of Leo Strauss and the effect that they have had on uh, through the universities and colleges that some of the conservative uh, public intellectuals attended, uh, and you're also talking about uh, Separately, I think of uh, Jewish conservatives as having this hypersensitivity to authoritarianism. So, so feel free to 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 flesh it out in any way you'd like. But I'd I'd love to know a little bit more about the cleavages within public intellectual.
1: Yeah, interests. I mean, so again, I should just uh, admit that I studied with Jim Caesar, who was a study student of Harvey Mansfield at at Harvard, and um, the influence of Strauss is definitely part of my. Intellectual um, uh, armament myself, um, and I do think that you know a significant part of the um, conservative intellectual movement was um, shaped and influenced by um, Strauss and students of Strauss and those writings. And one thing that comes out of that is um, a belief in um, the idea that uh, liberal democracy needs to be. Elevated that its danger is that it will be drawn down into um, populism, into uh, the term they would use is demagoguery, um, and demagoguery is a central um, uh, risk of liberal democracy, and that it needs to be protected by institutions, and among those institutions, um, as I, might, uh, as both Harvey Mansfield and Jim Caesar have argued, are political parties. That should um, elevate the uh, opinion of, of um, liberal democracy rather than appeal to its basest um, elements. And I think so, you know, it doesn't if you if you came into this with that kind of intellectual baggage and background, then you would definitely see Trump as a significant threat. Um, with that filter. And again, I think the same thing is true as we talked about, not just of Jewish conservatives, but of uh, Mormons who I think were, you know, fairly important in this as well, right? The big, the state with the largest support for Evan McMullen was, and Evan McMullen was Mormon, um, but was Utah. And I think one thing we talk about this in this book is what you might call the catastrophic imagination, Um, the ability to imagine Things getting much, much worse, right? And that's part of the communal experience of Jews and Mormons in a way that it's simply not for most other religious traditions in the United States. Um, And to the degree that it was in this campaign, it cut in the opposite direction, right? Lots of, um, of Christians uh, had come to believe that um, they were in uh, that they were under threat. Their basic communal um, uh, control was under threat. Um, you think about the um, uh, Flight 93 uh, article that Michael Anton wrote that um, that suggested that this was you know the last democratic election if um, if Republicans lost, and therefore they needed to swallow things that they wouldn't otherwise. Swallow and go along with, uh, with Trump, and so in a way there was a lot of um, of apocalypticism uh, going on in this campaign, but among Republicans it often cut in quite different directions.
2: Rob, I think you wanted to contribute something on this.
3: Um, no, I, I I think Steve covered it. I, I just wanted to make sure that he uh, that, that that he addressed the the, the religious piece that you asked about. Earlier, so. I, mean, I
2: think I think that part of the book is really good because it uh, it fleshes out this notion of American liberalism as fragile uh, as as a fabric that if you pull out too many threads, you could see it disintegrate. and the cleavages within conservatism about just how many threads you can pull out before you do. Tip towards authoritarianism, and as I was reading it, I was very much reminded of Philip Roth's *The Plot Against America*, um, a book that really pushes on this feeling of Jews that they that that they are not safe unless the institutions of liberal democracy are stable, and any sort of instability could potentially hit uh, create problems for. Uh, minorities like Jews or Mormons in a, in a way that was seen very differently um, by others. Um, I want to put you a little bit more on Straussianism uh, and the role it plays here. Um, and not everybody knows who Leo Strauss was. He was a, a, a German intellectual who emigrated to the United States uh, during World War II. He, he had a uh, m- m- very particular views on the role of philosophy and how it guides us. And he also had a category of people. Some people call them the gentlemen, some people call them the statesmen, people who are supposed to translate. And and why I think that's interesting to your book is because you are showing this tension between Donald Trump, the populist, and elites who are very, very concerned with populism. So Small d democracy is not something that they welcome, but something that that terrifies them, and it certainly terrified Strauss. And he understood the role of these intellectuals in um, <clears throat> in 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 helping uh, create this kind of a um, of a bulwark between what it was the public liked. But but there is also a sort of gender component to Straussianism um, in how he understands who can be a philosopher. And and I was wondering about gender throughout this book. Every once in a while, it would jump out. Brett Stevens gives this sort of example about pornography. There's just these sort of little moments of feeling like you're in a locker room. And and I'm wondering in general about the intellectuals that you interviewed, whether um, they are predominantly men, what role gender played in any of the organization among either the public intellectuals or the, or the other groups? Because it, it seemed to be something that was perhaps there, but um, I, missed, I missed more of the fullness of the argument.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just should be stated that for the most part, the conservative public intellectual movement is just a lot more male than it is female. So that's, um, in, you know, in social science terms, you know, that's, a, that's a feature of the population rather than our sample. Um, and we do interview a number of um of uh of female never Trumpers. Um uh Mona Charon, I think is one of the most interesting uh ones in this. Um but they uh they I don't think they did, you know, and again, I think for some of them it probably was the case that uh just Trump's you know brute misogyny um uh just made it impossible to to justify. Uh, him, but just to go back to the previous point and again, I'm, I'm happy to go as far down the Straussian rabbit hole as you want to go. Um, but I do think that at least for a, a particular set of conservatives, and I think you know Jonah Goldberg is a good example of um, of, of, this, of this particular type, right He's not a um, PhD in political philosophy, but he's deeply read in the history of conservatism. And, um, you know, so much of not just Strauss, but other parts, right, um, Ortega Gasset's, um, you know, book, The Revolt Against the Masses, right, there's a lot of anti-populism um, in the history of conservatism. And, you know, one of the reasons that Strauss thought that the United States was a, was a good regime, not the best regime, which is an important distinction, um, but it was a good and decent regime, was that um, it was a regime that was based on constitutionalism, on the rule of law, on separation of powers, all these things that act as kinds of breaks against the direct transmission of, um, of popular uh, uh, attitudes or manias. Um, and those are all things that Straussians who are working in American politics had tried very hard to defend. Um, and again, again, you know that's one of the reasons why Trumpism, uh, as well as Trump, seems so threatening to them.
3: Yeah, and I'd maybe just jump in to 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 also make uh, an, an important and kind of core, but 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 point here is that certainly from 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 their perspective, that's there. There's nothing anti-democratic about that. It's um, a, a project of making democracy safe and and preventing democracy from from going off the rails and turning into something very different Um, of course some critics of strauss and straussianism um do perceive it to be anti-democratic and 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 there's a whole debate we we could get into over that but but I, i mean for 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 the group of people i think that that we profile in in the book um for them it's, uh, it, it's, it's not an anti-democratic thing. Um, it, it's, it's about, it's about, uh, having a healthy democracy, right. One that, um, one that avoids some of the things that have plagued democracies and destroyed democracies over the long course of human history. And, um, and, and, and so that, that's, I think how they would conceive of, uh, of the situation.
2: No, I'm sorry, Rob. I'm, I think I'm going all theorist on you. I, I, I'm distinguishing between the small D democratic and the small L liberal part of American government, such that the way I would see it is that the conservatives are very, very invested in the liberal part. Um, but the, the the majoritarian element has always caused conservatives to be um uh, to be nervous at, as were the Federalists, so yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's it's not, it's not something that I'm saying is outside of American government, and I I don't mean to be using democracy in the usual way we do, so I, I apologize for that. Um, let let's let's talk about the last part, which is about lawyers and economists. Um, it's a very very different story that gets told in this part of the book, uh, and this group, these two groups. Yeah, they come off very differently and as having somewhat different motives. Uh, Steve, I think you wrote this part. And so maybe you want to start us off with um, the lawyers.
1: Yeah, so the lawyers, I do think it's important to recognize that the lawyers of all these groups had just a very different relationship with um, with Trump. Um, that, uh, you know, there were many conservative lawyers. And again, one of my previous books was on the conservative legal movement, um, who were very concerned about Trump, um, who, you know, Trump was very much their last choice. A lot of them had supported Ted Cruz, who himself, himself was part of the conservative legal movement. Um, and, um, but in the end, after they went through, you know, down to their 19th favorite candidate, they got to, um, to Trump. And, you know, one of the important things is, um, unlike these other groups, um, Trump had not openly rejected their jurisdiction. In fact, if anything, he had increased their jurisdiction during the campaign by um, embracing these lists of potential Supreme Court justices that uh, had been put together through the sort of heritage and federal society networks. Um, And so he had, in a way, embraced them, because I think he recognized, especially through their connection with social conservatives, that they really had power, right? Um, They didn't just have this sort of role that um, they were powerful because everyone believed they were powerful, right? They were powerful because they could hurt someone. And Trump um, openly, therefore, embraced them, said that he was basically handing over this entire function of judicial selection to them. And that froze a lot of these um, uh, conservative lawyers in place. The other thing that we mentioned is that um, the, they many of them just had a, a lesser repulsion for Trump um, in that just their professional job is often defending people that they don't find uh, particularly morally appealing and the entire sort of professional process for understanding, uh, you know, how you do that. And and so I think they conceptualized Trump in that way as a um, as a client and a client is a lot different than a leader. Um, And so I think that explained a lot of why, uh, you know, why they made the decisions they did. Now, there were a number of conservatives, especially in academia, who um, ended up being more openly um, uh, opposed to Trump and the conservative legal movement. Um, I think some of that has to do with um, the fact that uh, judicial selection was a little less important to many of them, um, and that um, things like political philosophy, um, that the separation of powers... The you know, role of the, of the judiciary in a liberal democratic system all mattered to them just as much, if not more, than the judicial selection. And one thing that came up with a number of those people is they were really worried that the project of originalism, which was their intellectual project, would be um, uh, forever stained by the association with Trump and therefore that it was important to distinguish um, themselves from, uh, from Trump as a person.
3: Yeah, and if I could just uh, jump in with with one little uh, illustration that's always stood out to me on on just that that client serving aspect of of the, the the legal network that Steve was talking about. Um, yeah, you know, just part of the the, the job description of being a lawyer uh, is is that you represent people sometimes who uh, who you don't like or or even think are, are bad, terrible people and that that's just fine that it that it doesn't reflect on you personally right that's just that's just your job and one one illustration of that was um when when i interviewed john yu and how how different that interview was from so many of the others that steve and i did and i was just so struck by the way that john yu uh talked about the whole trump phenomenon in in such a carefree way and it was um, it, it was a huge contrast to the almost uh, therapy session, like interviews that, that, that we had with a lot of the other people who, uh, who weren't lawyers. But, uh, but you would talk about the experiences. It was kind of like a, a low stakes sports rivalry or, or a Coke versus Pepsi kind of debate. And his, uh, and his friends were still, uh, were still kind of teasing him about it and, ha ha, isn't that funny? Kind of way, and it was just such a contrast with um, with again a lot of the national security people, the political professionals, who um, who for, for for whom this was like just a huge and horrible moment in their lives, and uh, for 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 the the, the lawyers, um, just tend not to think about it in quite that quite that same way as as it's, it just isn't so such a personal thing for for a lot of them.
1: Yeah. And I, again, the other thing I would say is that compared to the national security network, this is a very polarized group of people, right? There's very little overlap between the conservative and the left of center legal networks in a way that there's lots of those on the national security side. So where the national security side you know, would often look at their counterparts on the other, you know, on the, in the other party and say, you know, we disagree with them on some of these things, but you know, they're, they're, they're one of us. They're part of this national security establishment. This really was a either or choice, right? Um, they thought that if, you know, if Democrats won, they would fill the judiciary with, um, with lots of very left of center judges, and that that would have very significant consequences, um, for them for a very long time that they often believe were going to be irreparable, um, in a way that some of the changes in these other areas really don't have that long tail that judicial selection does.
2: No, and one thing I really enjoyed in that chapter was the few people who felt the necessity to bind themselves, um, sort of a Ulysses and the Sirens moment in which they they knew that one day they would be called into the White House and be asked to do something. And in order to not be called, they put their name out publicly opposing the president, uh, the the candidate uh, would be President Trump. Uh, and, and so you, you can see as you uh, paint the picture of the lawyers how, on the one hand, they actually have something at stake. And so having this kind of durable cooperative relationship, that's a term that you use, uh, it actually got them something they did get the just the judges and uh, that they um predicted they would and um and for those who were tempted they some of them at least removed that temptation um Steve, I want to ask you about the economists. they don't come off well in this book um they seem to be the one group that doesn't have much collective action that actually doesn't have uh much of a response and so I was wondering if you can. Uh, say a little bit about what distinguishes the economists from these other professions.
1: Yeah, so on the one hand, even more <clears throat> arguably than the national security conservatives, um, Trump's entire worldview is counter to that of the modern economics profession. Right, the entire modern economics profession, going back to Adam Smith, is based on the you know belief that the world is made up of the possibility. Of um, non-zero sum interactions between people, right, and that's true of the economy. But in some, I think it's in a way a more of a general worldview um, that exchange for mutual benefit is uh, is good. Both sides can win out of a interaction. Whereas Trump's entire worldview is a zero sum worldview, right? That's true in national security, um, where you know international cooperation is always just a For him, another word for being exploited by foreign countries—it's true in the uh, economy where some sides to an interaction to an uh, interaction are losers and some are winners. Um, That certainly was true of the economic interactions that Trump and himself engaged in. So in a way, right? He had you know openly um, questioned their jurisdiction, and and again, quite openly, didn't want to take advice from Republican economists. But on the other hand, economists simply have a very different worldview in particular about politics, um, that they are much less likely to have a sort of moralized conception of government in a way that national security people do, where they really think of it as having concepts of honor are very important for um, conservative national security people and the the view that we sort of associate with um, public choice in economics—that all of politics is itself just a world of exchange—that I think made them less likely to react in highly moralized ways. They were disappointed with Trump. They didn't like where he was taking his his um, the the party, where you know trade and other kinds of things were were concerned. Um, but they. Um, you know but they're also a highly individualistic group as compared to the national security people. The national security people were very comfortable exercising influence over each other and telling each other how they should what they should do, whereas the economists tend to be much more individualistic and much more likely to simply act on their own rather than to act through forms of collective action. So.
2: It- Let's turn to the conclusion of the book. Um, I realize that you uh, published this before many of the events that are before us uh, happened. Uh, First, I want to start with a question from a student. We have some students working with the podcast this summer, and uh, Benjamin Warren wants to know from you whether you thought that Never Trump was doomed from the beginning or there was a strategy that could have been used to stop Trump something that wasn't considered or was considered, but wasn't implemented?
1: Yeah, I'll take that. I mean, you know, I mean, it depends on what you think happened on election day in 2016, right? Um, You know, it, you know, if you think that what happened is that Trump got an inside straight, and a huge number of things all fell at exactly the right way on that particular day. And that if you reran the, you know, if you reran the program, you know, 20 times that it would flip to Hillary Clinton, um, you know, 17 or 18 times, you might say, well, this is a great strategy, right? And if we, and if Hillary Clinton had won um, and Trump had lost, then we would probably all be telling the history very differently and we would say what a bunch of strategic geniuses these were the guys were and they were the ones who were there to sort of pick up the republican mantle and people would have all been saying that populism was a big mistake so in that sense right you know obviously they were wrong in the sense that they lost but it's not necessarily the case that given the information they had and given the probabilities that they didn't have a entirely plausible strategy um, again, you know, what if, um, they had gotten a much more plausible candidate than, um, than Evan McMullen, right. They were very close. Um, you know, the, you know, history is often made up of a bunch of these, you know, accidents and contingencies. And so it's always easy to go and rerun this and say that, well, if they'd only done this or that, right. Most of these guys did, and they're mostly men, as you mentioned before, you know, they did most of what you know, they used most of the ammo that was at hand. It wasn't like they left a lot on the battlefield, but they were quite limited. They were quite limited financially because I think a lot, most of the, um, the anti-Trump donors were in fact, quite worried about what Trump would do to them personally. Um, if he, um, if he won, uh, and, um, so I do think, you know, they, they didn't leave a lot on the battlefield, but there was they, they had only limited resources to deploy.
2: As I understood the book, um, you don't simply see them, actually, as having failed because you see some sort of long-term effects potentially on the Republican Party, on conservatism, even on the Democratic Party, and on... American constitutionalism as a regime. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if we could just end with of, 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 of what you see in the long haul uh, as, as the effect of never Trump.
1: Yeah, so I can take this and then Rob can jump in. So we argue in the conclusion of the book and as you know as you, you do tons and tons of these interviews and you always know the conclusion is usually the worst part of the book. Uh, and so we very much wanted to avoid that um, by just sort of summarizing what we had already um, argued. And what we did instead was to do a kind of exercise in futurism um, to imagine what would be a scenario in which these never trumpers would not simply be a kind of marginal, force, but would actually be uh, relevant. And we argue that um, that future in which they're relevant is a future in which the parties are much more durably factionalized than they have been recently, Um, that is divided into organized um, groups who negotiate with one another, who have their own financial bases, geographic bases, interest group um, bases, um, intellectual um, uh, kind of uh, foundations. And that the parties are much more heterogeneous internally. You're already very much seeing that in the Democratic Party, right? As you have an actual Democratic Socialist um, faction the Democratic Party, they're putting up candidates, they're winning. It um, wasn't just AOC, it was just more, uh, this recent primary, some of those candidates are winning. They've got their own intellectual organizations, their own ways of raising money online. And that we think that something like that is probably going to come to the Republican Party, where the sort of Trumpist populist faction is probably going to be the majority faction, but that they won't be able to win political power without a minority faction that's competitive where that populist faction is not. Um, You already see this in Republican governors in states like Maryland and Massachusetts, um, where, um, where Republicans can win with a different kind of, um, of message. Um, if, uh, you know, people with money and intellectuals and other people actually formed a, um, discrete faction and ran candidates and developed a different brand in the way that the Democratic Leadership Council did in the eighties and nineties, that you can imagine the Republican party becoming a more heterogeneous party. And the never trumpers would really be this sort of intellectual grounding of that um of that minority but pivotal faction in the Republican party.
3: Add that you know, a more factionalized um party system is uh, is normal if you look back over uh, American history, right? That's been that that uh, that's been the usual state of affairs. You know, we have a, a two party system, and you know. Th- Everyone likes to talk about third parties, but for for all kinds of structural reasons, that's that's just very hard. You know, there's a reason we haven't had a new party since uh, come on the scene and since the uh, since the 1850s. And so, the way our system has typically addressed the, the 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 demand out there for more than just two options is is through intra-party factions. And what's notable about the last uh, several decades is is the absence of those factions. So. Um, so, so, so it's not it, it, it's not at all crazy to think that 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 we could be um, uh, primed for a return to that. And and as Steve uh, points out, you know, we we can already see the the, the outlines of that. I'd also say, uh, you know, for 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 these um, never Trumpers, there there's a reason why they were and are Republicans, right? It, it, it's not just so easy for them to to, to switch over to the Democratic Party. Um, they, they, they are conservatives. Um, and, uh, and, 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 so once Trump is off the scene, whenever that, whenever that happens, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's not just so easy for, for, for them to say, uh, well, we're, we're done with the Republican party and, um, you know, they, they've got to land somewhere. Um, but, but to kind of highlight a, a point Steve made in passing, you know, we, we do, um, spin this out as a scenario right there, there's no iron law of social science that says this is going to happen if it happens it's going to uh, require um, that that individuals uh, make choices um, to uh, to turn their energies um, in the direction of, of building the institutions um, for uh, in intra-party factions um, as opposed to, um kind of going down what what we tend to see is kind of rabbit holes of um, trying to develop a third party or 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 something like that. So individual agency is uh, is going to matter
2: well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk with me today. I, this was I read this this week uh, while the uh, story of John Bolton and his book and uh, was was spilling out. and I think it's extremely relevant, uh, for heading into the November election. And I recommend, uh, uh, re- recommend it to all our listeners, uh, Robert Seldine and Stephen Tallis' book is never Trump, the revolt of the conservative elites published by Oxford university press in 2020. It's available on the Oxford university website available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. It's also available through bookshop.org, which will allow you to support uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores uh, that are not yet open during the pandemic, and they will mail it directly to you. So um, thank you so much, Rob. Thank you so much, Steve. And uh, I guess we'll all be watching this um, incredibly interesting and important election coming this fall.
3: Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Susan.